Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week, we're going to bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So, Kristen, you are in one of my favorite towns where I went to college, and that is Austin. I'm having a blast, but I am unfortunately not doing – this time I did not plan ahead enough to do the – Margie reenact her college days tour of Austin. Yeah, I think that's probably best for your health and (laughs) legal record (laughs) that you not do that. First of all, you would not be awake right now if that was the case. And maybe we should just start and end right there. (laughs) But um, but you're there with one of my um, good friends, Jennifer Sarver, a fantastic young Republican woman. And I'm just very happy that you could just take a little peek of how fun Austin is. Um, And and I can use this opportunity then to do a quick plug for APOR, which we'll talk about in just a second because I know that that, this was also our our interview episode from this week. But APOR is the American Association of Public Opinion Research. And their conference about a month from now is going to be back here in Austin. So Margie, if you want, I'm I'm going. I'm going to be at the APOR conference. I can arrange a Margie's college experience bar crawl as an extracurricular activity for interested the pollsters fans. Yes. If you give me an itinerary. I can I can lead this. Well, I'll get like a little tour group flag. We can get matching shirts. It'll be great. And I that would be an excellent idea. Right. So that would be like it, you do 6th Street, but maybe not really 6th Street, South Congress, which was just kind of a glint in everybody's eye at the time. Um, there were just a couple of places there. Now it's a whole to do. Um, oh, it's so exciting to even think about. Yeah, that was all good stuff. Although some of the real stalwart places like Liberty Lunch, Les Amis, Quack and Bushes, that you may have seen in um, Slacker, the Richard Linkletter film from the mid-90s, those things are all now <laughs> rubble <laughs> they do not exist anymore but some of the big emos i think doesn't exist anymore so a lot of the big places are not there anymore but we could still put something together but if for folks who apor is american association of public opinion research we had david dutwin and as our interview this past week he's from apor and also ssrs he's a methodologist now if that sounds a little in the weeds for you because you're just here for the trump polling 
don't think that way. Take a listen. It's, he speaks very, very clearly about methodology, the difference between IVR automated calls versus online. Do response rates matter if they've been hurting polling? Cells versus landline calls. It's he's and he was super nice and super clear. So definitely take a listen. That'll give you a little uh, hint of what APOR is about. And so last but not least, I have one fun Austin story to share. I don't know if it's Austin specific, but this is a a lesson to all of our listeners. Be nice to your Uber driver. Uh, I went to someplace called the Hula Hut, which had pretty tasty tacos. And it's like right on the river. Um, And I was taking my Uber back to my hotel. And I get in the Uber and the driver is clearly frustrated. And he's like, thank you for getting in my car so quickly and being such an easy passenger. My last passenger was not very considerate. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And he's like, yeah, he was some kind of political consultant guy talking on his phone. And it was, you know, it wasn't good. And I was like, oh, political consultant. Interesting. So I kind of like this guy is ready to chat and I'm kind of like fishing for information. And it turns out it was somebody who was pitching the Trump campaign on data software to like monitor like do delegate or voter oh, god no wonder he was testy stuff. right um and i guess the guy was just ranting about how like the cruise team is so far ahead of the trump team on all this stuff and and so then the uber driver's like giving me the scoop on everything he heard and i of course not told the uber driver like my whole story i'm like oh this is interesting really no well i follow the race very closely uh and then he says he used to work for gallup and like used to help write the questions that they would have for their USA Today partnerships. Wow. So it was like, how weird is that? Wow. So be nice to your Uber driver because you never know where a pollster is the driver or is going to be the next passenger is going to focus group it out of the driver. Right. You you don't even need you, – you don't you can't just be careful on the Excella anymore. You have to be careful every, <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> literally Just sit in everywhere. the quiet car and then don't talk at all. <laughs> it's a great plan. I'm just going to hide out in my basement. Maybe then I won't say anything dumb. <laughs> That's my new strategy. Okay. So what are the top lines? today. Top lines this week. The Dem race, officially not Snoozeville. We have fully turned the corner into the Democratic race being uh, almost as thrilling as the crazy Republican race. Um, And of course, the Republican race now headed to Trump land. We'll take a look at what the polling in both contests look like as we move into New York. Uh, Then Bloomberg and Purple have a new study out. Um, Margie will walk us through some of the great findings and things we've learned about 2016. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about religion and how people say their religion affects their happiness and their health. And last but not least, we'll talk a little bit about zombies. Uh, But first, the poll of the week, you tax show-offs. There's a poll by Retail Me Not, uh, which is a site that some of you may know is a place to get your online coupons if you're about to buy something at Crate and Barrel or J. Crew. But um, they did a study asking people if they had done their taxes, and 86% had said they had done their taxes before the end of March. That seems incredibly high to me. I mean, I remember news reports of people like at the post office at midnight freaking out, trying to do their, you know, sending their taxes at the very last second. I feel like people must be overestimating, you know, just it's like a social, socially desirable thing like voting or giving to charity or, you know, being nice to people. People just say, oh, yeah, I've already paid my taxes. But that is a huge number. So um, that is the poll of the week. Most people have already done their taxes. I 
I'm not most people. This will be one of those questions where I am in the small minority of people who have not done their taxes yet, which is why I was doing this instead of doing my taxes. So moving on to the Democratic side. So people have been getting a little worked up about this on the Democratic side. Trump is getting a little worked up about our contest for some reason. He says it's rigged, just like the Republican side. Joe Scarborough said it's rigged. Um, Lots of people saying that the Democratic contest is getting testy, the gloves are off and that sort of thing. I just, I guess I just don't really, I mean, it's like, just like I said last week, I, I, maybe it just takes a lot for me to get upset and riled up to think that things are testy. Like, it just doesn't really seem very testy. And I don't know where the rigged is coming in. I mean, right now, Clinton has a majority of pledged delegates, you know, she's on pace to get a majority of pledged delegates, and then she'll have a majority of superdelegates. So then taken together, she'll have a majority of total delegates. So I'm just not sure I see where the rigged part is. And out of all of that, I have a piece that's coming out today in CNBC.com that's going to go through this. Um, You know, even if Sanders wins New York, I don't think that that scenario changed. It's not that it couldn't change, but it doesn't – it seems likely that it won't change, especially since we've had a real steady stream of polls coming out of New York from the last – week or so that basically point to the same thing, that Clinton has a more, you know, more or less a double digit lead or, or so, maybe just under double digits, um, like say seven to 12 point lead over Sanders. And that's true regardless of the methodology. Some of the polls are online, some of them are IVR, some of them are live calls. They all basically point to more or less the same finding. So unless all the polls turn out to be wrong, which I know people like to root for, or something dramatic changes, you know, it doesn't look like Sanders will win in New York. And then I just, you know, it's just to me, I think doesn't suggest that there's something rigged about this contest. I mean, what do you think, Kristen, as you watch us talk about it on the on the left? Well, I had a pretty fascinating vantage point. Uh, So this past Sunday, I was on ABC's Sunday show up in New York, and they had both Senator Sanders and John Podesta on the show. Um, And so just sitting in the green room, you had Senator Sanders give this really long and I thought pretty good interview um, with George Stephanopoulos. And then like, he comes out of the green room and like, I don't, I didn't see him shake John Podesta's hand. That must've happened in the hallway. You know, and they like sort of like tagged in and out and then stood there like silently watching each other's interviews. And it was super uncomfortable. Um, but Hey, this is how politics works. What fascinates me is that this is where my, my relative youth, I think is, is a hindrance in this profession. So like I, I so I've been trying to do my homework since I'm joining on with the ABC folks. I'm like reading Stephanopoulos's book about what it was like to work for Clinton in the '90s, um, and he talks about there's like a, a chapter or like a set a couple paragraphs that I almost wanted to like copy and put a picture of on Twitter where he talks about how they had this fear back in '92 that like the convention was going to be like rigged and take the nomination away from Bill Clinton because they were worried about all of the like draft stuff and the women stuff and whatever and like but the things that he writes about like their fears about a convention being rigged or delegates taking it away from him like sounded exactly like the sort of stuff you're reading now about these upcoming conventions kind of on both sides it actually sounds a lot like what you hear um the trump folks saying oddly enough um but yeah i mean this is this the sort of thing that on the democratic side has happened because you you all have the super delegates which to me seemed like a built-in protection against complete craziness. 
delegates, right? Right. And it, it has not happened where the superdelegates have then picked somebody that voter have overruled where people are, you know? So it has not happened where voters said, okay, we want this person. And superdelegates said, too bad, you get, you're getting this person. So that hasn't happened. And, and you know, so, so then that, so then what, where's the rig to come in, right? I mean, is it complicated? Is it, you know, confusing? Should it be changed? I think those are, totally valid questions that lots of people would say, sure, yes, let's have those conversations. Um, but, you know, I think if the if the superdelegates end up on the same side as the voters, then I just don't, I, you know, I don't think people can then say this, you know, the system is, you know, leading us in the wrong direction. They could say, I don't like it or this, the race was close and I'm disappointed or it's frustrating or it's contentious. Those are different than, than rigged. Um, and it's been pretty similar process now for a while. There have been changes in sort of the number and kinds of superdelegates. But the last few cycles, that that hasn't been changed. I mean, the Republican side is where each state is so different. Each election <laughs> is different. Uh, the Rules Committee, I mean, we've talked about some of the rules before. Um, the rules are like an organic thing that change every single time. They are not the same from year to year uh, or from cycle to cycle. So, um, So it's very easy for people to say – like what? Like, what is this process? Like, how do we get used to it? What is it? You know, why does it keep changing? If it keeps changing, are you really? How can you make the argument that this is the best system if it's just constantly in flux and subject to whatever people are negotiating? And I mean, I heard today, I didn't quite hear the whole thing, so I don't know what this, how, like, what this even means. Like, eleven hundred is the new twelve thirty-seven on the Republican side. I mean, we'll get to the Republican side in a second, but it's just, you know, it just goes really all. All over play, all over the place on the Republican side. We just don't have that on the Democratic side, and on top of that, we don't have a either of our candidates who you know are just reviled by the people not supporting them in their primary. I mean, the, all the votes, all the polls show a lot more party unity on the Democratic side. We talked about some of this last week. Pew. Uh, people felt that Democrats are going to come behind whoever their nominee is. Republicans don't feel that way. Um, you have uh, Democrats say that they're, you know, Sanders voters say they're going to vote for Clinton if she's the nominee. Clinton voters say they're going to vote for Sanders if he's the nominee. That's not true to the same extent on the other side. You have, you know, exit polls from Wisconsin saying people on the Democratic side are going to be um, excited or optimistic if somebody wins, whoever wins, regardless of who they vote for. So, um, so I think we just don't have the same either rigged in in practice or this concern that we're going to be a real house divided, even if it ends up being very tight, which it could still very well be. Yeah, the Republican side is the one where every state does things differently. And it's not just a matter of can you come in and win 40 percent of the vote? Yeah, you get 40 percent of the delegates. It's it's just it's madness, and it's the kind of madness that Trump wasn't prepared for. Um, apparently, he just hired a California state director yesterday, um, and Ted Cruz has already submitted a full slate of delegates. I mean, like, it's just, it's totally crazy pants um, to think about how much work Donald Trump is going to have to do to figure out our system before the convention. It's just nuts. Right. But meanwhile, he seems likely to emerge victorious out of New York. I mean, there he's, you know, polls show people consider him the most likely to be the real New Yorker, um, which I, you know, I guess seems reasonable. Doesn't mean he's necessarily going to win, but he, he, you know, he's strong overall. Um, can he get over 50% in each of 
the congressional districts, though, because if he gets you know high scores in each of the congressional districts and a high score statewide, then he can you know really clean up a lot of delegates, right? I mean, the secret is can can Kasich and Cruz pick off a few delegates in a couple different you know upstate or you know, smaller areas where there are only a few Republicans maybe in the city where they can, you know, just try and pick those folks off. I don't know. That remains to be seen. But, you know, I think the polls show that Trump is going to be very strong in New York and maybe can make up some of the ground he's lost in sort of his delegate process elsewhere. Well, this is what I think is kind of, I I will call it giggle worthy about the coverage of this. So, you know, Ted Cruz wins big in Wisconsin. He picks up all of these delegates at the Colorado State Convention and everybody's like, oh, is this the end for Trump? Trump is done. He's not going to get on the first ballot. And if he doesn't get on the first ballot, he's over. Trump is toast, right? Like that's the hot message of the moment. But meanwhile, the polls have always shown and will continue to show that Donald Trump is just killing it in New York, Connecticut, like all of these states that are coming up. He is killing it. Um you know, he's the question in Connecticut. Like, I don't know that I always, I necessarily think of Connecticut as Trump country, but of course he does really well in you know Massachusetts thus far as the state that he's done the best in. And right now Emerson has him up near 50% there too, which would trigger like a winner take all situation. So what I mean by giggle worthy is that everybody's like writing Trump's obituary right now. And yet we're going to get to these next contests. Trump is going to do exactly what the polls say. He's going to do pretty darn well. And the narrative is going to change. And all of a sudden, everybody's going to be like, oh, my gosh, Trump is unstoppable. Look at all these delegates he just picked up. Trump is on a roll. He's having such a good week. Like, everybody is so, when I say everybody, I mean national political reporters and many of my fellow pundits are just very susceptible to the, like, whims of, oh, Trump's having such a bad week. When, like, all of this data is out there saying, well, Trump's about to have a really good week, everybody. Like, nothing is changing. When Trump has this, you know, a blowout win in New York and a blowout win in Connecticut, like, and all of a sudden, oh, Trump's having a great week. The momentum's really shifting back his way. Like, that has been the state of the race. It's just that people aren't looking ahead and paying attention to things. It's, it's, it's just funny to me how reporters, like, overplay this momentum thing yeah. when... Trump will do very well in these upcoming states, and he still does not have the organization necessary to pull off big delegate packets in states like California. Like This is all stuff that we know right now. Yeah. But as it gets reported over the next two months, it's going to be like this revolutionary, crazy, oh my gosh, huge swings in the race. Yes, when yes. This, this stuff is all baked in. Right. Some of that happens in the coverage, too, on the Democratic side. Like, oh my God, Sanders won Washington State and Hawaii. <laughs> like, that, well, those were things that, you know, you, that you could have predicted before, before those happened rather than be like, oh my God, how did that happen? I had no idea. Um, but here's something that we can see that's some pretty new information about Trump's vulnerability in the General. Now, we've talked before about how Trump doesn't do so well with women um, and he needs to. Republicans need to. That's how they can. You know, that's the difference, the make or break difference in um, uh, in these elections. And uh, here at Purple with Bloomberg Politics, we did a, what we're calling a purple slice poll. We're going to be doing these throughout the year. And uh, 
of just married women. Now, this is a group, married women are going to be a little bit more conservative and Republican than women overall because it doesn't include unmarried women who are, as uh, as most folks know, a very reliable Democratic voting bloc. Married women are a little bit more Republican. They voted seven point, they gave a seven point advantage from Romney. So that's just a, you know, example of the direction that they can go. They're going to be a little bit whiter. They're going to be a little bit more religious. They're going to be a little bit uh, more upscale. Um, so a Republican needs this group in order to win. So it's probably not a surprise and troubling that uh, Trump does so badly with this group. Seventy percent unfavorables with this group. Oh, God. I mean, it's really bad. Now, we should note that Cruz and Clinton are not particularly popular with this group. They are, Cruz is 36-58. Clinton's 40-58. Um, the two candidates who are popular to some degree are Kasich, 42-34. He is net fave. He just has higher don't knows. And Sanders, who's even, 48-47. Uh, we had a separate question. Who do you think is most likely to become president regardless of who you vote for? Kasich and Sanders came out at the bottom of that list, even though they are the most popular candidates with this group. But in the head-to-heads, Clinton has a 12-point advantage over Trump, 12-point lead. She ties Cruz. So a group that went seven points for Romney, who lost, neither Republican top-tier candidate can, you know, looks like they can really win with, or they're not winning with right now. Um, You know, Cruz maybe has a little bit more of an advantage. Um, And then we asked very specifically about some questions about Trump, you know, these either-or questions. Trump is setting a new low in his campaign's negativity that's discouraging me from politics, or he's bringing refreshing honesty to campaigning, and candidates can learn a lot from him. You may you may not be surprised to learn that a majority of married women agree that he's setting a new low, even a third of Republican primary voting married women. I mean, that's pretty high for your own base. I mean, this is pretty strongly worded, setting a new low. Then we have a new, another question. The way Trump talks about women's offensive and embarrassing, it makes him unacceptable as a candidate, or he simply tells it like it is. He speaks, speaks plainly about all groups. It's clear from the people Trump trusts he values the input of strong women. And there, a majority of married women say, no, the way he talks is offensive and embarrassing. And about a third say, no, he's telling it like it is. The numbers are flipped among Republican primary voters. But still, I think if a third of Republican primary voting women, married women, say these really pretty strong things about you, you're in trouble. I mean, these numbers, I think, are quite stark. What did you think when you saw this? Yeah, I mean, this is why you continue to hear all of this talk that I think is a little bit fantasy land talk. That, the, that there's going to be somebody that's going to get picked out of this convention because the delegates in their infinite wisdom will say, Donald Trump, We most of the people in this room don't even like Donald Trump. You know, they'll be there at the Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland and they'll look around and they'll be like, why are we all about to pick Trump? We all don't like him. Um, and then after you get to the second ballot, this is the, the theory is that then, you know, crew, now that Trump has been sort of taken out and you have a lot of people that are free to choose whomever they'd like, uh, somebody new will ride in because people, you know, the delegates in their infinite wisdom are looking at polls like these and saying, oh, my God, if we nominate Trump, we're screwed. And then they look at those numbers like for Cruz and they say, well, those numbers for Cruz aren't particularly great with these women either. Let's go with a Kasich. Now, I still think that's complete fantasy land. And I think if the party does that, it's going to be an absolute meltdown. Um, but nonetheless, th- it's this type of polling that is feeding a lot of that discussion where people say we have to pick somebody right 
with better numbers than this for the general election. Right. Well, we need a long, a long game and, you know, we'll take the short term hit as long as the long term benefit is there. I mean, look, there's some other polling here, Marist McClatchy, uh, about this very question. And we talked about this a little bit last week or about the need for asking about how, you know, asking Republicans, how, how should this process work? And, um, uh, over half of Republicans in this latest poll say if Donald Trump has the most delegates but not enough to be nominated on the first ballot, should should the Republican Party nominate Trump or nominate someone else? A majority say they should nominate Trump. Even you know between a quarter and a third of Cruz and Kasich voters say that. So it's not just Trump voters who obviously say that. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of news this week about Paul Ryan saying, just, look, I'm not in this. I'm not going to do this. Um, but you have about 30 percent of Republicans saying it's acceptable for the nominee to be a Republican who didn't even run in the primaries this year. And that's numbers not really that different, regardless if you're a Cruz, Kasich or a Trump voter. Yeah. So this is the, the, the thing that is going to be really crazy coming out of Cleveland is not only who do we pick, but like what happens to the factions of the party that feel upset by how we got, like, how do we get there? Do we get there because the rules changed? Do we get there because unpledged delegates who, you know, they hate Trump, but they're legally obligated to vote for him on the first ballot because of the state they're from? Like, what happens to those people? I mean, that's what is cuckoo bananas about all of this, is not just who are we going to nominate, but how are we even going to get there? And who is going to feel slighted at the end of this and as a result, who, if anybody, just walks away from the party entirely? Right, right. I mean, NBC Survey Monkey did a poll this week, and they showed about a quarter of Cruz voters say they would vote for a third party if it was Clinton versus Trump, and about a quarter of Trump voters say they would vote for a third party if it was Clinton versus Cruz. So, you know, I don't know. I don't Good know. Times. Good times. I don't know what happens. I mean, right now we're kind of at peak primary. Maybe not peak. I guess if there's a contested convention, then we're sort of at peak primary identification, right? But people are making their decisions right now. They may feel differently as we're headed toward the general and they're more focused on whoever the other side's nominee is. But, I mean, these numbers are pretty – I mean, they're pretty worrying, right? So then the question is – like, OK, well, let's say we lose them. That's still better than having President Trump, it, not just better for the party, but better for everybody. Right. Or not just better for the party's chances in November, but better for recruiting, better for, you know, in the next midterm election, better for down ballot people running for state rep. I mean, there's all kinds of considerations beyond just, you know, whether people think it's acceptable to nominate one person or somebody who's not running or somebody who's not running but ran for president before or what have you. I mean, there's just so many other considerations. So I don't envy the Rules Committee and Republican insiders' job this cycle at all. It seems very, very tough. Again, not really in the same league as what is going on on the Democratic side, where I think we benefit from the conversation that we're having. We're not being torn apart, even if even if we're having real conflicts uh, or real discussions. Um, so Turning to something maybe a little bit happier and lighter, there was a Pew report, I think a Pew report based on data they've had now for a while, um, about comparing religious uh, folks to folks who are not so highly religious on differences in some of the things that they do in their day-to-day life. And, you know, I I think these are really – I mean, I think these results are interesting. I mean, folks who are more religious are more likely to gather with their family. They're more likely to say they're very happy with how things are going. They're more likely to be satisfied. 
They're more likely to have volunteered or donated time or goods in the past week. Um, they're no more likely to do a variety of other interpersonal interactions. Like they're no more or less likely to have lost their temper or tell a white lie than folks who are not religious. Um, they're no more or less likely to exercise or overeat, which I thought was interesting. They're just as satisfied with their own health. Um, they're no more or less likely to think about things like employee wages or environmental impact uh, when making purchasing decisions. I mean, I think this is a pretty interesting set of questions. I mean, what did you think looking at this, Kristen? Yeah, what I, th- I mean, it seems to me that it's saying that religious people are in general, they're, they're no, you know, better or worse, healthier or less healthier, more virtuous or less virtuous. Um, but maybe just have different ways of, of dealing with the things that they are handed. Um, you know, that, that they're not reporting that they're living in particularly different ways in terms of, you know, have you, did you overeat? Did you tell a white lie? Did you lose your temper? Like, it's not like they are, you know, perfect people. Um, but rather that if you are more religious, um, it's just leading to sort of higher satisfaction with how things are going. Maybe like a different sort of coping a different ability to to cope with things. Um, and then you also have, you know, these questions of people saying, you know, do, what do you rely on when you're making major life decisions? And here you see some, some interesting gaps. So when it comes to, do I do my own research? I mean, everybody says this. And, and frankly, by the way, Margie, I'm sure you're the same way. If I had a dollar for every time I've been in a focus group and I've put up an ad or handed out a worksheet or something and somebody goes, well, but is this true? Because I'd want to do my own research. Like if I had a dollar for every time somebody said that to me in a focus group, I'd be a very wealthy woman. Yes. Um, everybody loves to say, oh, yeah, I, well, I don't trust anything that you're showing me. I always do my own research. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. And you're Ew, like, where, and you're like, where would you go? Yeah. Tell me where that where you would go for that research. Well, I'd go to Google. OK. OK. What would you type in? Um, all right. Give me an example of a time that you did research just like this and what site did you go to? And then what, what did you find? <laughs> and then, then it starts to get a little, a little shaky, but anyway, Reese doing your own research. I know I chuckled at this one too, beats out, um, even, you know, with not highly religious folks, it's the number one thing. It's almost tied with highly religious folks with prayer and personal religious reflection. That's the power of, that's the power of research, right? I guess not just the power of prayer, the power of saying that you want to do your own research. Yeah, I mean, that to me seemed very in line with other things that I've done in studying sort of religious populations is that for, is that a lot of things that we may not think of as necessarily having a moral dimension to them suddenly have a moral dimension to them that is a a factor in the decision making process. Um, And here you also, you know, advice from family was roughly tied between the two highly religious, slightly more likely seven points higher more likely to say that they take advice from family. Um, they're four points lower uh, than the non-highly religious to say that they'll take advice from professional experts. But then advice from religious leaders, a third of the highly religious say they take advice from religious leaders, only 8% of non-highly religious. I'm actually curious, if you're not highly religious, what religious leaders you are turning to for advice. That's kind of interesting. I don't know. Right? Who knows, right? Maybe you have a very broad definition of what that means. You're thinking mm-hmm. like self-help or you know, somebody on television or something. Well, and the other piece of this this theory that I have developed out of looking at this survey about, you know, it's not that people think that by being religious, you have to be perfect, but rather that you have to try to react to the things that are handed to you in the, a, a certain way. <clears throat> Is then on this question of, they asked a bunch of Christians, 
which of how is it, are, are any of the following things an essential part of what it means to be a Christian? And believing in God, 86% say that that is essential to be a Christian. Um, but then the next two highest items were being grateful for what you have and forgiving those who wronged you um, at 71% and 69% respectively. Um, things a little bit lower down the list, working to help the poor and needy, still 52% say that's essential to being a Christian, committing to spend time with family, 48%. And toward the very bottom of the list were things like living a healthy lifestyle, resting on the Sabbath, and buying from companies that pay a fair wage. Those were things that uh, less than one out of five said were essential to being Christian. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I mean, the things that are higher are things that are more internal and the stuff that's mid-pack requires some sort of commitment of some sort, working to help the poor and needy, spending time with family, reading the Bible, those attending religious services is even lower than all of those. Um, things that require you to actually, you know, to do something as opposed to feel something are a little bit lower. Um, and then these other things, I, I mean, are just kind of an interesting list. Dressing modestly, that's on the list. That's a little bit lower, but higher than resting on the Sabbath and higher than buying from companies that pay a fair wage or working to protect the environment. Um, so yeah, so it's all it's all pretty interesting. So this is from Pew, and um, as uh, always, we'll link to the stuff in our show notes. And they define highly religious as folks who. Um, where does it say there? They pray daily and attend religious services at least once a week. So they do both of those things. Everybody else is in not highly religious. So I guess that's why some of them may rely on religious leaders because they may still have uh, a religious practice. They're just not something that they do daily or weekly. Um, so there was a viral video, which I was not going to watch because I got kind of the sense of it from just seeing people talk about it. But then Kristen urged me to watch it, and it is, is every bit as good as <laughs> it was everything it promised to be. <laughs> so, Kristen, why don't you talk about it? Uh, so there's a big video um, out where two brothers, they took their younger sister to go get her wisdom teeth out. And, of course, the Internet is full of these videos of people who come out of wisdom teeth surgery, and they're kind of drugged up, and they're weird, right? I have been told that I in the car on the way home was oscillating wildly between joy and sorrow. Uh, you know, this is just what happens after dental surgery. So what these brothers did was they decided to trick their sister into thinking that the zombie apocalypse was happening um, while she was like drugged up post-op in the car. And so, uh, and they videotape it, of course, and they put it online. And this sounds really cruel, but it's actually, I think, makes the girl look awesome. So her, name is, her name is Millicent. And she's the, she is high as a kite, and she is the smartest person in this whole situation. Like, at one point, one of the brothers hands her, like, one of those claw things you use to pick up garbage and is like, Millicent, you're going to need this to protect yourself. And she looks at him, and she's like, no, I need a knife. This isn't going to do anything. <laughs> um, at another point, they run up to her with, like, two boxes of, like, cupcake mix. One is Funfetti, and one is chocolate. And they're like, Millicent, you have to pick. Which one are we taking? And she's like, Funfetti, but why does this matter? <laughs> and she's like, why am I the one who has to make all these decisions? Why am I making all these decisions? We we have guns. Why are you putting garden equipment in the truck? We have firearms. Why don't you bring them? Um, like then they're at, I think the funniest part, I guess if you're a cat person, you'll particularly like this, is they ask her which of the pets they should save. And she just <laughs> immediately screams at her brother, the cat, you idiot. <laughs> Cut to the cats on her lap. Oh, Anyhow, but this, I think it so makes good. Millicent look really good because she is definitely drugged up, but she is the only one thinking correctly about like 
why are we worried about cupcake mix and why are you putting garden equipment in the car? We need to go. Like, don't go to Costco. It's going to be a bloodbath. We need to get on the road. We're not the Marines. Like, let's move. (laughs) So I went to look for polling on what would people do in the zombie apocalypse. And um, I I don't think we've talked about this poll before on the show, but if, if we have, I'm fine revisiting it. So in 2013, YouGov asked people how they would react. And 40% of people say they would fight back like Millicent planned to. And 28% of people say they would hide out at home or in some kind of a shelter. Um, Interestingly, here is a ask a millennial portion. Millennials are significantly more likely than other age groups to believe that a zombie apocalypse could be a thing that happens. You have a majority, uh, 51% of young voters who say, or young adults, who say, I don't believe a zombie apocalypse will ever happen. But that goes up to 71% for folks who are 35 to 54 and 79% of those who are 55 and up. So younger people, much more likely to believe a zombie apocalypse will happen. And they think it is most likely to be a result of a parasite that turns its victims into zombie-like creatures or a scientific experiment gone awry. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there are a lot. There, it turns out that there is lots of polling out there about zombies. I mean, the other thing that was funny was that what is the closest thing we have to zombies right now? And this is again from 2013, but a plurality said 45 percent uh, said politicians, and we might we should add that the second most common response is reality TV stars. So. You can do the math about how we might be able to extrapolate that to where we are today. But this is 2013. And then PPP, of course, had to weigh in on zombies, too. And Congress, <laughs> Congress back in – this is also 2013, which I guess was a big year for zombies. They, Congress was losing out to zombies, Wall Street, and hipsters. The, all those groups got better ratings than Congress. Again, this is from 2013. We have to look at the tracking. I would imagine zombies are probably – staying about even while politicians are getting are, get, are getting increasingly lower ratings. That would be my guess. Well, I, uh, you know what, right now after this uh, election, you know, it, I'm interested to see what is left standing of the Republican Party. It may just be zombies, Wall Street, and hipsters. That may be all <laughs> we have left. Yeah. People who decide to be Republican because it's ironic. <laughs> Wall Street. <laughs> Because, of course, and zombies. (laughs) Right. That's good. That would be good. Um, Okay. So the key findings. Uh, Who are you calling rigged? The Dem contest looks absolutely civilized next to the Republican throwdown. And when married women think of Donald Trump, he gives them a headache. Uh, In case of zombie attack, I'd prefer Millicent or any of her brothers to some of the candidates in the current field. And when we take all this politics aside, religious is a source potentially of happiness for many. And with all this free time you have from doing your taxes, it should free up some time to write a review of The Pollsters. You can find us on Twitter at at The Pollsters. I'm at K. Soltis Anderson and Margie's at Margie O'Mero. You can find us on Facebook where throughout the week we post links to the stories that we might want to be discussing on the upcoming show. You can also find us at thepollsters.com with show notes and links to all the polls we've discussed today. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Stitcher, whichever you prefer. And please make sure that if you like our show and haven't done so, take a few seconds, write a review. We would really appreciate it. Bye. Thanks.